The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. We're looking at Matthew chapter 4. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew. I grew up a big Orioles fan. Anybody big Orioles fans here in the church? I mean, those times of, uh, well, they're not as good as the olden days. It's kind of like being a Redskin fan. Uh, all your glory days are in the past. But um, in 1983, they went to the World Series, and they, and they beat a team by the name of the Philadelphia Phillies that year. And uh, <laughs> so as a kid, um, my dad was, um, he worked for U.S. Air, and he had the privilege of getting us back onto the tarmac. And so when they clinched, and I don't think it was the World Series, I think they had clinched the pennant. They, um, my dad used to fly, and another friend of his used to fly, and one of the places where we go cycling with the guys on uh, Gillis Falls Road, there's a grass strip uh, runway that we were able to take a Cessna 172, and I got in the back, and we went at night, and we were gonna fly straight to BWI Airport, my pen in hand, and when they get off the plane, I would get all of the Orioles' autographs. How amazing is that? You know, Eddie Murray, Cal Ripken Jr., and it was great. I was all excited, and we got airborne down the ways a bit, and something happened. All of the lights went out in the cockpit. We had a huge electrical issue, and somehow it just went black in the front. And I'm in the back, you know, and this is you know, 37, 30 some years ago, 37 years ago, they didn't have cell phones back then, okay? No iPads to instantly give you light. And so the only light that anybody had was uh, my dad's friend had a pen light in his shirt pocket. And so here are the two of them. We, ab- we abandoned ship. We never made it to, the, to get the autographs. But my dad was using the pen light to shine on the instruments. The instruments are kind of important flying. I mean, there's important, <laughs> there's important things like how fast you're going and the altimeter and, you know, your altitude and that kind of things and rate of descent and all that kind of stuff. Well, my dad was literally calling out the coordinates to his good friend Mike with this pen light, which was our only light. And then we come back to Woodbine Airport, and this is a grass strip airport in the middle of Carroll County, and it's a farm. And there's two lights that were your coordinates to land. And the one is, is there was a Coke machine about two-thirds down the runway. There was a big shed, and the big shed had a Coke machine for where they were towing uh, gliders and whatnot. And that was a vending machine, and that was a little bit of light, and you knew you needed to be 50 yards to the left of the Coke machine. And the other light was a pole light. And the pole light at the other end meant that's the beginning Basically, it was this guy's house, but 50 yards to the left of that, that's where you want to land this thing, okay? So between a pen light, a Coca-Cola vending machine light, and a pole light, here I am today. We, we landed, and <laughs> now my point in telling you that, my point in telling you, if you think hard about your own life, I bet you most of you have a story where you were absolutely dependent on a tiny amount of light. And that little bit of light 
got you through and it made all the difference. And this is a story this morning about light breaking into darkness. In the midst of deep darkness, Jesus is going to come as the light of the world. Let me pray for us and we'll look at this text. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world. There's none like you. And we ask now that, Lord, you would show us, take us out of darkness, remove the scales from our eyes, the enemy who would blind the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the knowledge of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd remove that barrier and speak just like you did at creation. And you said, let there be light. We ask that you would let there be light in the hearts of men, that we would see who you are. Turn on the lights, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 4, beginning of verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Now when John, and when he'd heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Well, we're going to look this morning at Jesus' initial public offering is the title of the sermon. And his initial public offering, what we have here is Jesus' launch pad, where he is launching his public ministry. And we have here a when, we have a where, We have a why, we have a what, we have a who, and we have a how. That's your outline, okay? So it's pretty clear as we go through this. It starts in verse 12, now when. So there's our when, and the when was that John had been arrested. You remember John was the light, the moonlight, shining, pointing to the sun. And John comes to to prepare the way of the Lord. But John is put in prison, and we're told from Mark In Mark's gospel, chapter 6, we're given the details of why he was put in prison. You probably remember, we're we're told that it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. 
So Herod had taken his brother's wife and married her. And John the Baptist had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. And so this is the, basically the end of John's ministry. He goes off into jail, to prison, and Jesus launches his public ministry, and that leads us to the where, because it says he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And so here Jesus comes to Capernaum, and if you think of the, uh, a map of, of Israel, and today Israel and Jordan, they butt up next to each other, and the Jordan River is the dividing line. And the Jordan River at the top end, we have the Sea of Galilee, and at the bottom end, towards the bottom, you got uh, the Dead Sea, but at the very top of Galilee, right at the northern point, is Capernaum. This big sea village of about 1,500 people, I'm being somewhat facetious. This is a very small town. It's just a quaint fishing uh, village. It reminds me of John Mellencamp's lyrics, that all my friends are so small town, and my parents live in the same small town. My job is so small town, provides little opportunity. Well, that's what you would think, that it would provide little opportunity and yet it was the big opportunity that Jesus wants to show us that his entrance is from small places. He has humble roots. It's the stump of Jesse that's going to change the world, right? And so this is where Jesus launches his ministry. And the question is, why? Well, that's the fulfilled prophecy that we see in verses 14 to 16. We are told, as we quoted this morning from Isaiah 9, verse 1 and 2, that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, death on them a light is dawn. You see, Jesus' ministry began in the north, right where Isaiah said this light would come. And this, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the service, this is always where bad news came from. When the invaders came, that's where they came from. When the intruders came, they came down from the north. And so whenever something would come down from the north, it was never good news. And that's why Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because it was not good news. And yet there's this prophecy in Isaiah 9 that even in the midst of the Assyrians are going to come and take you out, and they're going to conquer you down from the north, where the shadow of death was Someday, the light is going to dawn, and it's going to start there. And Jesus is, is bringing this in. And so, as one commentator put it, these lands, the first to feel the ominous tread of the warrior's boot, would be the first to see the, great, the new and great light God would focus on Israel. And so bad news changes to good news. And so this leads to... Great joy for us, and there's also a significance to this because Galilee is, is, is significant. Like when you, uh, purpose, when, you, when you propose to your wife or, you know, when you do that, you pick a special place, right? And typically the place has special 
uh, significance. Hopefully you've picked something, you know, if you didn't, well, you're going to have to answer to that on the way home today. But, you know, usually those are significant places. Well, Jesus purposely launched his ministry in a significant place. And when he was raised, these are the bookends of the gospel. What does Jesus say? They're in Jerusalem. And as he's raised, he says, meet me where? In Galilee. They got to hike all the way to Galilee to meet him. Because his launching of the beginning of his public ministry was at the Gentile, the nations, this melting pot. It meant this is no longer for, just for Jews. And Matthew's making this point all throughout. If you remember the very first beginning of Matthew 1, when, when Ben preached about the different ladies that were in Jesus' genealogy, several of them are Gentiles. And then we get to, to chapter 2, and beginning of chapter 2, wise men from far off come to worship Jesus and we see this isn't just Jews and what we're seeing is the gospel goes out now and Jesus begins his ministry there to the nations and so when he's resurrected he says meet me in Galilee and now he's going to turn the launching pad for the disciples to begin their public ministry from Galilee of the nations to fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah 9. And the idea here is Sam Albury in his book Lifted says, his reign is global and so our concern is not parochial. World mission is therefore not an optional Christian hobby for some. Jesus' concern is to be our concern and that involves having a concern for the whole world. The progress of the gospel to and among the nations is to be on the heart of all believers is that this Galilee, this gospel is going out to all of the nations. And this is Jesus' agenda, therefore it needs to be our agenda as a church. And so what was the message that went out? Well, the message, is, it's a pretty short sermon, isn't it? He comes in verse 17, he just says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Very similar message as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This isn't some long explanation of the Pentateuch. It isn't a long explanation of the Psalms or the prophets. There are no quotes from any part of the Old Testament. Yet this very word is all about the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That the big promises made to Abraham and then to David and then the prophecies about the king and the kingdom from the Psalms and the prophets like, like Daniel and Malachi. The word is Jesus is the king and now the king has come. And so the message is repent. This call isn't something that you can be indifferent about. This call to, to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It isn't maybe what you've grown up hearing. Maybe you gr grew up hearing the ABCs. It's, it's that and more. Do you remember the ABCs? You know, admit you're a sinner, believe in the Lord Jesus, and call upon him to save you. I mean, don't neglect those. Those are important. But the ABCs don't get into, he comes to rule over your life. Every square inch of this universe is his. And so his lordship is coming in, and this initial public offering is different than the initial public offerings of this world. Because the initial public offerings of this world, you know, when something goes public, when private stock goes public, whether it's Amazon or Facebook or, or UPS when it went public, those 
Public offerings are determined, the prices are de- de- determined on perceived value. And the, the IPA is a way, IPO is a way for a company to raise capital and for the public to become shareholders into a company that was previously privately owned. And you can choose to get on board with the, the IPO and you can get in or you can just ignore it. And if you don't have money to get into the game like most of us, well, then you just ignore it. Well, for this stock, you have to be broke. That's the only way you begin. And we'll look at that next week. But the very first words about the kingdom is, is, is Beatitudes is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So this begins the entrance of the kingdom. You start with nothing but need, and it's all you need. It's not like the world's uh, IPO. You need some money to get into that. I've been reading some of Jen Pollock Michael's uh, books, and she's, she's a good writer. Ben and I were introduced to her at a, at a Gospel Coalition conference and noticed that Tim Keller was deferring to her a bunch in a Q&A, and she was very articulate. In her book on paradox, she has a chapter called Hiding in Plain Sight, and it's about the kingdom of God, and she gives her testimony. She's one who grew up, and she, you know, memorizing scripture, and she'd memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and the King James, and by grace you're saved, you know, through faith. And she said, but if I was a believer in Jesus at 16, I was no follower. I had another version of the good life, which included sleeping over at my boyfriend's house weekends when his parents were away. And he too was raised in a Christian family, and we argued over the state of, of our salvation, I in favor, he against And at 16, though, she said, when I heard the voice of Jesus, I knew this much, that to follow him, I'd be asked to turn from sexual sin. With God's help and by God's grace, I did that. But as I've come to understand it ever since, the kingdom just doesn't insist on the ethics of the bedroom. It upends every part of a human life. It's a deeper pool than than we imagined when we dove in. If the kingdom is good news, it surely isn't safe. Because there's no square inch of our lives that Jesus doesn't intend to rule. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the initial public offering of Jesus here with his ministry, it isn't a take it or leave it kind of message and you can just get on with your life. Jesus shows up and when he shows up and says, repent, the kingdom of of heaven is at hand, it's like saying, parents are home. And, and you've been, you know, and you've been doing stuff you shouldn't be doing, and it's like they're home. I remember when I was in, in high school, I went with my cousins to Myrtle Beach, and we were in this trailer park at Myrtle Beach. I think it was near the Pirate's Cove, if some of you guys know Myrtle Beach, and there's this kind of cheesy amusement park over there, and, and they let us go free one night, so there was no parents around. And, and I met a girl at this amusement park. And so we, you know, we'd known each other all of an hour, and we decided to take a walk down kind of the main drag. And being all mature that we were at 15 years old, I, were, I was holding her hand, you know, like we'd known each other for years or something, you know. And all of a sudden, she shrieks back in horror and says, it's my dad, and she grabs her hand back, and this van pulls up, and I'm going this way, the van is coming this way. She shrieks and says, it's my dad. He rolls down the window and says, with a couple extra words that I'm not gonna say, get in the van. And she got in the van, 
and I never saw her again. <laughs> there was no Facebook back then, no cell phones, no exchanging of phone numbers. He said, get in the van, and the show's over, like that. And I didn't know, should I keep walking this way, or what do I do now? But I was with somebody, and they're gone, never to be seen from or heard from since. Well, we laugh, but that's kind of what Jesus does when he shows up. He shows up and he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets. There is a change just like that. I mean, here, James and John, I mean, they are running Zebedee Fishing Enterprises. They've got a nice business going with their parents. It's pretty swank. And Zebedee Fishing Enterprises just went belly up, just just like that. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. And see, here's the thing. Jesus' IPO is just totally different. Jesus owns us. He's the shareholder. We're the stock. And he says, I chose you to go and bear much fruit. You didn't choose me. You see, in that day, the way this worked, and if you think about who this is for, who is this message for? It's for the people that Jesus calls and says, come follow me. And, and it's a very specific call because in that day and age, what happened was you got to choose your rabbi. It was kind of nice. If you liked the rabbi, you'd say, hey, you'd go and say, hey, I'd like to follow you. You know, I'd like to be, you know, your disciple. And that's how it worked. But lo and behold, Jesus turns everything he does, turns everything upside down. He does the calling. He does the picking. And he goes out to these two sets of brothers, and they're just two regular Joes, Peter and Andrew, James and John, two sets of brothers in their fishing businesses, and he says, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And he's going to turn their life completely upside down. Isn't that what he does when he calls us? You know, there's one scene in the movie 1917 that I, I really liked. I won't spoil too much for you if you haven't seen it yet. But there's a scene where this, this, the main character, the main two characters, they get picked by a general or somebody very high up to take these orders. And initially, the guy just brings his friend along. And he thinks... You know, he just brings him because he thinks it's going to be good news. I mean, the general has a message for me, and, and he brings his friend, and so the two of them are charged to take this message, you know, through enemy lines and take it, you know, out before this ambush comes, and you've got to get to your brother, otherwise they're all going to get annihilated. And so they got to go through enemy territory. And, and the one guy just says to the other one, why did you pick me? Like, this is, you know... And, and he's basically saying, I thought it was going to be something good, you know? Like, <laughs> and that's kind of what happens to us is that there's a part of this where you didn't know what you got into to follow Jesus. And it's better than you can possibly imagine, but it also comes with suffering and hardship and more than we imagined or counted. We thought everything was going to go perfect when we, when we came to Jesus. Everything was just going to wonderfully cohere together. And all of a sudden now, people don't like me. I tell people at work I'm a Christian and they no longer really want to talk to me and I'm no longer on the, on the high list to get promoted like I was before, you know? And when I go public with Jesus, it doesn't always go so well for me. Isn't that what Jesus promised us, that we'd be hated? 
just as he was hated. And so, you know, this message is, is, is much different than, than the IPOs of our culture that you can ignore. You can't ignore this message. You know, we, we laugh at the Godfather line that says, I'm making you an offer you can't refuse, right? Because it really isn't an offer at that point. It's, it's a demand at the threat of death. I'm making you an offer you can't refuse. Well, in that world, the mafia is not good. And might makes right. But Jesus' authority, it, he, he is the authority, but he's also good. And so he makes us an offer we, we can't refuse. And then we find ourselves saying in response things like, how can I keep from singing your praises? How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the king, and it makes my heart want to sing. How can I keep from singing? Or since from his bounty I've received such proofs of love divine. Had I a thousand hearts to give, Lord, they should all be thine. A thousand men could not compose a worthy song to bring, yet your love is a melody. Our hearts can't help but sing. It's an offer we can't refuse. You see, Jesus comes bringing in this ministry and he calls us to follow him. And when he calls us to follow him, we have to stop following something else. You know, the Redskins have been bad for a long time, but there was a very laughable moment last year when there was a special teams play. A few of you remember this, but you can see it coming with the Redskins often. A punt return, they line up a wall to the right, and they block everybody and they run for a touchdown. I mean, you can kind of see it coming, you know? And we're not athletic enough to do anything about it. But this one particular one, they kicked it to the other team. And the guy, they set up, you know, he fakes left and then he goes right. And they just start walling everybody off and mowing them down. The guy's running down the sidelines. But we have one guy that has a clear shot on him. And he comes and he hits the, the guy behind him and takes a blocker out right, right off into the sideline. He clearly was following the wrong guy. And he took the wrong guy out. And everybody laughed because he was following the wrong guy. The guy with the football is the one that you're to tackle. Some of you are following the wrong guy. You laugh, but what are you following? You see, Jesus' call is like, what are you following? Because we're all following something. And his call is now, this is a new, you got to follow him. He's the king of the heavens. And heaven has come down, as we just sang about. And now he's come, and, and this invasion is coming in, and he's bringing this intrusion of his kingdom. And so how does he do, how does he do this? Well, he brings this intrusion into our world a lot differently than we expected. Jesus comes saying things like, we're to love our enemies, that we're to turn the other cheek, that we're to go the extra mile. This is all in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get there. But where do we see that in the New Testament? Well, at his arrest and trial, he turned the other cheek, and at his scourging. On the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, he went the extra mile with a cross that he couldn't even carry anymore. And on the cross, he loved his enemies. Jesus embodied this kingdom message to save us from our sin by paying for our sins on a cross because he loves us. 
And he wasn't just healing the sick here for the sake of healing the sick. He's making everything right again. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, Jesus wasn't just healing the sick for the sake of it, important though the healing itself was, nor was it just a way of attracting people to listen to his message. Rather, the healing was a dramatic sign of the message itself. God, the world's creator, was at work through him to do what he'd promised, to open blind eyes and deaf ears and to rescue people and to turn everything right side up. The people who've been at the bottom of the heap would find themselves, to their own surprise, on top. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So Jesus comes, breaking in, and it's like the breaking in of dawn. He says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And before Jesus' coming, it was pretty dark, wasn't it? This is how Isaiah describes this darkness. He says, the way of peace they do not know, and there's no justice in their paths, and they've made their roads crooked, and no one who treads on them knows peace, and therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. That's Isaiah 59 describing our sinful state. And guess what comes on the heels of Isaiah 59? Is this light is going to come. And the, and the nations and the kings are going to see this, this light. And it says golden frankincense they're going to bring to you. Ring any bells? That's Isaiah 60. Because his own arm is going to bring salvation. And so now the, the light has come. The dawn has arrived. John the Baptist came pointing to this light of Jesus and, and his message in Luke chapter one or his, what was prophesied about him was he was to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so now, so much of the Bible has this imagery of we were once darkness and now we're light. You who were once darkness, but now we're light in the Lord. We're now to walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And we're trying to discern what's pleasing to the Lord and take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful to think of the things that they do in secret. You know, this week I was over in Rockville looking at the abortion clinic that's right over next to Montgomery College. And it is a dive over there. And it's always on a backside. And you just see nothing but darkness. And they're doing 80 abortions a week over there, right off 355. There's two rental units over there. Start praying. Because we're going to try and get in there. We've got to expose this. We've got to get some light in there. If we could get a pregnancy center in there, there would be a lot of babies it can be saved. You see, we expose it. We start to bring the light of the gospel to bear. We're now to give thanks to the Father. Why? Because he qualified us to share in the inheritance of saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians says. Literally, he's deported us. We, we, we got caught over in darkness and we've been deported over into the kingdom of light. And so now this is the message. God is light and him there's no darkness. And so we can't say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
John says in the chapter two of 1 John that he's writing a new commandment because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19, I love these verses, particularly 4, 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know over what makes them stumble. And so we were, we're in this world, as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, he calls it enemy-occupied territory. It's what the world is. But Christianity, Lewis says, is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is taking us to take, he's calling us to take part in his great campaign of sabotage as he's bringing in the light. And you remember the end of the story? The end of the story is this. Revelation 21 and 22 is that I saw no temple in in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. For its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there'll be no night there. They will bring it into the glory and honor of the nations." No longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the they is God's people. We take part in this. And so we are part of this sabotage of bringing the light And now you bring that kingdom light to wherever your sphere of influence is. Every square inch of our hearts and every square inch of where God would have us move in the workplace and, and different influences and people take the kingdom of God and take that light with you and live it out. Let's pray. Lord, you call your people to follow you Forgive us for following other masters, particularly ourselves, the building of Babel that goes on all around us, building these towers to make a name for ourselves. And you've come that we would no longer do that, that we'd make a name for you and that we'd find our joy in our life and make it much of you. We ask that you'd lead us into a deeper repentance Lord, now as we come to your table, thank you for a foretaste of what is to come. Lord, we thank you that you really love your children. Thank you that you've come to make us your own, to share fellowship with you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.